This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. 20 years ago when we started the show, we were in our teens, someone asked me if I thought we had enough material to sustain a medical program for more than a couple of months. Well, my friends, the show you're about to hear today screams yes, well and truly. In fact, just putting this show together got me really excited. First up, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kudzai Kanutu. Kudzai is a specialist infectious disease physician working across a range of fields, including sexual health, refugee health, and medical informatics. And I'm looking to her to make sure that I'm correct in all of these. And in her spare time, she's a world-class cook. Today on the show, Dr. Kudzai will be telling us about some of the unique health problems faced by people who have risked life and limb to get to safety here in Australia. And if you thought you knew, well, you don't. Dr. Michelle Telfer is another amazing individual. She's too humble to tell you herself, but Michelle was an Olympic gymnast who actually went to Barcelona. Fascinating. Before she decided to become a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital. But she's not just any pediatrician. Michelle leads the team at the Gender Clinic at the RCH. Doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, endocrinologists and and others, all with one goal, to look after teenagers and children who feel that they may be in the wrong body gender-wise. She's incredibly well-respected and we are very fortunate to have her here on the show to talk about her work. And rounding up the show is my mate, Dr. Nick, GP extraordinaire. Now, for those unfamiliar with Dr. Nick, go and Google him. You might need his surname. Third item down on the Google list, you'll find the front page age headline, GP Dr. Nick Carr admits prescribing Beverly Broadbent lethal drugs. Oh, he stands up for what he believes in. And whether you agree with him or not, you've got to admire his intestinal fortitude. And so today on the show, Nick will be talking with us about the euthanasia debate and the new legislation and exactly where we are up to. And Nurse EpiPen, who is gesticulating widely in front of me, will be in for special comments in her inimitable way. What a great show. I mean, really, where else can you get such an eclectic mix of medicos at 10am on a Sunday morning? Okay, maybe Club Med Tahiti, but if you're not there, you may as well be here listening to Radiotherapy for the next hour. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Good morning. How are you, Mal? I am very well. I can see you're sharing a seat there with Nurse Pen, but she got the headphones. <laughs> she did. And I'm, I'm very excited about this whole euthanasia thing, so when we get to that, can't wait to talk about it, partly because I went to speak to a politician to lobby him uh, later. You're a and, lobbyist? Yes, I went to, on Friday this week to go and talk to someone. I'll tell you about that a bit later. Oh, this is He's fascinating. He's so keen. <laughs> so keen. And uh, Pen, thanks for coming in. Good morning, Mal. Looking very uh, pink in your lycra. Uh, Dr. Kudzai, thank you so much for coming in too. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, Michelle. Good morning, Mal. Now, uh, I can call you Michelle because we've known each other or we've, we've met about 10, 15 years ago when you were a we young have. trainer. Yeah, when you did a short stint in psychiatry. That's right. I was yeah. working at the Alfred as a registrar. Yeah, a long time ago, a long time ago. Now, my friends, what was I going to... Christmas disease, is that right, Dr. EpiPen? Uh, uh, no, EpiPen? Uh, EpiPen. Um, I just thought it, I was going to do a really quick thing on Christmas. Mm. So I've come up with an acronym. So Christmas, so H, uh, C. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? Private, private school education. X, X, no, X. C, C for Christmas, the first letter, carols. Okay? H, this is one for you, Mal. All right. 
Hanukkah. Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, it's a Jewish celebration festival, which falls on the 25th of December this year. Does it really? But it's actually spelled with a C because it's Hanukkah. Oh, it is too. That's okay. I'll give you that one. Oh, okay. So it's a festival of light. R, reach out in what you have and what you can give to people, family, friends. So that's R for reach out. I, invite orphans to your Christmas table. I just thought I'd throw that one in. Mm. Um, S, no, this is a really nice one because my son and I watched a film called um, Payback. Pay forward, pay forward, and it's Kevin do, Spacey. Yeah, Kevin Spacey. It's and so I've thrown this one in for S: spontaneous acts of kindness, mm, nice. helping people cross the road. Um, tears. So T T for tears for absent friends, people that have passed away, people that can't be with you at Christmas. T M for money. Mm. Donate some. Mm-hmm. Donate some to a charity. A this is a hard one because I wanted to donate blood, but allocate time to give blood. <laughs> <laughs> and S, my last one is sp- Christmas. It's a time to be spiritual, social. And what do we all think about Christmas in Australia? Summer holidays and summer. Six weeks of summer holidays, yeah. 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 Had you had a few wines when you come up with this? Or- <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about Christmas I know, disease. I was the... going to do Christmas diseases. There's Christmas tree rashes and there's a Christmas hematological disorder. And I thought, no, let's just take a time to reflect and think about Christmas. The meaning. And, and I like the one about allocate time to give blood because they are struggling a little bit at the blood bank. Oh, really? A lot of people can't give blood. I mean, I'm one of them because I was in the UK for too long and I could still be brewing mad cow disease. Hang on, hang on. You so they won't have mine. You can't give blood. No, so that... They, they rule out quite a lot of people, so they're very fussy about whose blood they'll take. So for people who can give blood, it becomes even more precious. So if your blood is squeaky clean, get down to the blood bank. Are you uh, feeling clean? I'm, I'm the same. CJD risk. I can't give blood because I was in England at that risk time. But can't they screen it for the little viruses? No, no, there's no test for that little prion. It's not a virus. It's a prion. It's a prion. Prion. Jeez, <laughs> oh, no, learn something every day. Now, Dr. Kudzai... Um, I read in the paper today that there is a shortage of antibiotics in Melbourne's hospitals. Is this true? It is true. So what does that mean for us, punters, individuals? In practice, we do have alternatives. So if someone comes in, for example, for those who are antibiotic or pharmacologically inclined, there is currently a shortage of metronidazole and vancomycin. Both of those drugs we do have backup plans for. It's just not what we would normally do. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, there is a shortage and it came as a huge surprise. We had some guests this week at our hospital tra- mm. coming from Europe and we always try to impress. Yeah. And the first item on the agenda was, ah, oh, we're out of <laughs> essential uh, antibiotics and we all sort of <laughs> grimaced into our laps. And uh, Yeah, but there is a shortage and part of the problem is, well, Australia is quite a small market globally and we import quite a lot of our antibiotics and we also have very stringent regulations in terms of what we allow in and who it comes from so if there's a shortage from one supplier it means that we don't have a rapid process of allowing drugs to come in from other sites and other locations so that's it's been sort of a sort of thunderstorm of factors that has led to the current shortage of antibiotics that is fascinating has that happened before it has happened in Mm. in minute mm. senses, but it's never happened on this scale with as many drugs simultaneously. So mm. that's been the big surprise that it's not just one, it's actually 
several drugs that are running at low supply. And if you do use these other backup drugs, are there any consequences of, of using those ones compared to the ones you'd normally use? More expensive or...? More expensive, yes. So for vancomycin, one of the alternative drugs would be lenezolid, which is... Say that one again, Sally? Lenezolid. Okay. So substantially more expensive. Yeah. And... Um, what about in terms of antibiotic resistance? If you give these second-line drugs, are you more likely to engender resistance or is that not so much of a problem? That, that's probably one for someone's PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I put you on the spot. I didn't mean no, uh, no, in the sense that for a short period of time, it would be an interesting challenge to actually establish what effects did it have in the long term yeah. of having to use or resort to what would not normally be used for indications. Oh, yeah, I see what it, you mean. Like so you weren't joking about no, research. No, I'm not like joking. You could say, it's Here's actually, a period of time when we can actually examine. We can actually see what happened. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it would be very difficult to judge what the impact of doing this for what we expect will be a short period of time would be on the greater ecosystem of what's happening in the community. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. Now, in about 30 seconds' time, Kudzai, we're going to be coming back to you to talk about uh, asylum seeker health. Sure. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Dr Kudzai, you work... At, tell us what you do. What's your job? What do I do? <laughs> It's, it's a little bit like those platform nine and three quarters moment in Harry Potter where people say, what do you do? Oh, you're a refugee healthy. You're, yeah, what's that all about? And I, I was the same. So I came from an infectious diseases background and through conversations with colleagues discovered that there was such a thing, refugee health. Mm-hmm. And I've been in the, this position for since February this mm-hmm. year and it's just been a voyage of discovery. So it's a bit, it's really what you make of it. So one of the questions I get from students or medical trainees is, oh, how do you do refugee health? What do I have to do? Is there a special course? The answer is no, because what it really boils down to is it's whatever skill that you have that you think you could apply to the challenge or to the the privilege, really, of working with refugees and asylum seekers. So for me, infectious diseases trained, that's what I bring. So Mm -hmm. my clinics, I manage people of refugee background, with respect to infectious diseases concerns, of which there are often many because mm, people mm. will have lived in environments where, and Michelle, you they, they won't have been vaccinated. Mm. They would have lived an entire childhood, no vaccination, no primary care access to any sort of health care, dental, all of the above, mental health, all a big blank. So for me, when I see people, that's the focus that we take. Let's make sure that your vaccinations are up to date. Let's make sure for women, for example, who may have missed their cervical cancer, mm-hmm vaccination, uh, that they're on track to getting screened for cervical cancer and doing the best that we can do to bring everybody up to speed from an infectious diseases perspective. I just heard a report on the weekend that uh, in Aleppo, the uh, diseases which we thought had mostly been beaten in, uh, I guess, our part of the world are making a recurrence like polio and measles because of the lack of vaccination. Absolutely, and it's a fa- it's a beautiful example of what we talk about in public health when we look at all of the determinants and the components of a health system. So it's quite unusual and telling. So this is the first time we've had a series of countries that were previously middle-income countries. Yeah. Previous generations of refugee countries were all 
you know, low-income countries where we didn't have a lot of data around what happens in this country. But in Syria, they had a beautiful, thriving health system mm. with primary care, specialist care, and then you were actually able to then watch the decline. So you could see rates falling. Mm. So for things like diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, they went from almost 95-plus percentage coverage to under 50%. And then you start to see the bubble on and the flow of children starting to present with all of these diseases that we thought were gone. Polio, for example. So it's a beautiful case example in the sense that we actually had the numbers and could point to it, whereas usually we're talking about countries where there is no infrastructure to monitor and we have no idea. I mean, one of the things that would get me is how do you recognise polio? I've never seen a case of acute polio or acute pertussis. I mean, I mean, pediatricians might see a couple of cases of pertussis, but how do you recognise these things that for a long time were just in textbooks? Oh, and that's one of the real challenges, especially for neighbouring countries who still have their health systems intact, to have populations of people moving into their countries who are having diseases that people haven't seen, leishmaniasis. There are people in Lebanon who haven't seen leishmaniasis for decades, and it's that retraining. Do you want to break down what leishmaniasis is? Uh, so leishmaniasis is an infection that usually affects skin tissue, so its most visible form is sort of causes blistering, mm. warty-like appear- appearance on the skin, but it can cause whole body infection mm. as well, so targeting all of the organ systems. But it's a condition that if you grew up in a country like Lebanon, it's a neighbouring Syria, for example, you, you would never have seen it. And a yeah. lot of the work was around retraining people and saying, this is what it looks like if you see someone who comes, for example, from Syria, because usually the infection circulates amongst the refugee groups themselves as opposed to spreading to the rest of the population. Because the rest of the population is immunised or...? Mostly because when refugee populations move into neighbouring countries, they tend to sort of cohabit or right. live near each other or they end up in camps. So, and then comes a situation where you have people who are living in really squalid, mm. fetid mm. conditions that are ripe mm. for the dissemination of infection. So most of the leishmaniasis, most of the polio that's happened even in neighbouring countries has been within the refugee populations themselves as opposed to spill over into the wider community. And in your clinic, uh, you said that one of the things that you do is to make sure that people's immunisations are up to date. What else do you see from an infectious disease point of view? I would have thought tuberculosis would have been a a big one. Absolutely. So we see a lot of tuberculosis, so latent tuberculosis as well as active tuberculosis. What's the difference between the two? So latent tuberculosis means that a person has been infected with the tuberculosis bacterium, but it's not causing any active disease. So it's there, but it's not growing. Right. So sometimes the analogy that I'll use is that it's like it's sleeping. Right. It's having a long sleep, but it can wake up. And when it wakes up, that's active disease. And in that scenario, you'll get evidence of disease wherever the organism is growing. Usually it's lung, so mm. that's where we look for it first. But it can be anywhere, absolutely anywhere in the body. And what did, just, I mean, I don't want to focus too much on TB. Is, is when you have latent tuberculosis, is that when you take the tablets that make your pee orange? <laughs> <laughs> You can. So there are different combinations of medications you can give to somebody who has latent tuberculosis infection to try and kill off the organism while it's asleep. But usually the rifampicin, which is the one that makes your wee turn red, is one that we give to people who have active Active disease. 
But you, sometimes you can give it to people who have latent, but mostly it's people who have active disease. So TB would be something you're looking for. What else do you see in your clinic? Hepatitis B. Lots right, of hepatitis yeah. B, particularly from people who have grown up in Southeast Asia yeah. and the Horn of Africa countries, West Africa. And that's, again, a consequence of the fact that those countries didn't have active vaccination programs. So women were either transmitting it to their children in delivery or it's just become endemic in those populations. I'm aware I'm gesticulating, but nobody can see it except <laughs> for you. Yeah, we can. We're important. And, and one of the things, one of the things, Dr. K, I'm, I'm aware of is that the diseases you've talked about were uh, polio, whooping cough, pertussis, um, even TB. Uh, these are diseases we can vaccinate against. Um, but when we've got whooping cough, polio, pertussis. Um, we can't actually treat those diseases. So vaccination is the crucial pathway. Absolutely. I mean, everyone knows prevention is worth a pound of cure. It's really easy to prevent a lot of these infections, but it's a real nightmare having to treat a child with polio or with pertussis or an adult, for that matter, tetanus. All of these things are incredibly difficult and frustrating to manage once they've happened, but really easy to vaccinate for. So just back up for a second. Um, pertussis, that's whooping cough, yeah? Is that right? Yeah. Yes. yeah you can't... I mean... The treatment isn't that you give antibiotics for that? Yeah, that you only give... I'm oh, sorry, I'm cutting across <laughs> you. But I, I speak with some passion about this because my uh, youngest child nearly died of pertussis when she was five weeks old. And um, so it's something I've had personal experience of. And the antibiotics sterilise the patient to make them less infectious to others but make no difference to the course of the illness. So the, once you've got whooping cough, you just have to ride through it and hope you survive. Right. Mm. So it must be. It must be so weird for um, for uh, a doctor brought up, uh, you know, in, in a sort of medical school and in a medical environment in Australia to see these kind of things. Because, as you say, we've we've immunised against them, and you know, we've thought that they were basically eradicated. Absolutely. I mean, if you if we have a case, for example, of measles, usually what happens is that patient is then pested by a thousand medical <laughs> students. Because everyone's come and see some complex spots, come and see what they've complex got. They quite come and have a look. <laughs> so you'll be fated and celebrated as a patient should you present with some of what these diseases that we would now call old world diseases, because we just don't see them here. I remember when I was a medical student, um, we uh, the the registrar took us to see a patient with this rash and he picked out one of my mates and said go examine this patient and my mate said look I think it's chickenpox but I really hope it's not and the registrar said why and he said because I haven't had chickenpox and lo and behold two weeks later he came down with a case of uh, chickenpox so yeah when you don't see stuff um you know it's very hard to recognize I was not kind of in your frame of reference absolutely so you got your immunizations you've got your uh, illnesses and diseases that aren't common, and TB, you said, was one of them. Pertussis was another one. Measles? But measles, again, so we don't see a lot of pertussis, yeah. particularly I'm adult physician trained, so oh, I okay. mostly see adults. But what we do see is people who have gaps in their immunisation uh-huh. history, and that's right. what we try to do. So that's done through either blood testing or even just asking them, uh-huh. what do you recall ever having had done as a child? And could I, um, does our government pay for these vaccines for them? They do. So people who come in as refugees will have access to a Medicare card from the time they arrive, so then they can access these vaccinations. But the one thing they can't get, which sometimes complicates things, is we can't get a quantifieron gold test done, which is a test that we use to assess for tuberculosis. We can't get that on Medicare. The patient has to pay out of pocket 
sometimes there, there are some centres around Melbourne who will provide it free of charge, but they do that in-house as opposed for, to that being funded. So let me just backtrack there because I remember something about Quantiferon Gold. Normally to diagnose TB you have a, is it a MANTU test, is that right? So there are two options. You can do the MANTU test, which is a skin test. Some people recall they inject yeah. some protein under the skin and see if your body responds to it as evidence that you've been infected with TB right. or you can do a blood test. And the blood test is the quantiferon one. Exactly. And could say what sort of what sort of English language do they have? Are they coming with needing interpreters and help? Yes. So historically, the English language proficiency of people coming into Australia on the refugee or humanitarian program has been about sixty percent will have little or no English language proficiency when they arrive. So that's generally what we find in clinical practice people definitely need interpreters and the one thing that I constantly hear from a lot of my refugee families is that they've been to places where they've been told sorry we don't do interpreting or no sorry why don't you bring a relative with you next time which is a incredibly unprofessional but I think perhaps that's a reflection or an indictment of some of the training that we do Mm. in medical schools around helping to improve health literacy and around the importance of using trained interpreters for all medical interactions. Trained interpreters is is, is the point yeah and do you have an interpreter in the room or do you do the phone interpreting service? Either so if I can get someone in the room great but sometimes it can be better to get someone on the phone for example if you're discussing something that's perhaps very personal it Mm. can be more comfortable for the patient or the client to have someone who's not physically in the room but there as a voice to facilitate the communication it really depends and some of the new languages or emerging languages it's impossible to get someone in-house what's an emerging language so For example, a lot of my Burmese or people from Myanmar, there are 2,000 or so dialects and there is no way that you will reliably be able to get someone. Or if you do, they might turn out to be a relative or a friend, which then makes (laughs) it really awkward or problematic. So what do you do in that situation when you... uh, Symbols, drawing... You have to push through (laughs) (laughs) what sometimes happens. And if you really can't find somebody what you often have to do is to do a sort of three-way translation so you get for example the partner who speaks Burmese you get the interpreter who speaks Burmese and then you facilitate the discussion to wife for example in the third language because there is nobody it's not ideal and I really like to avoid doing it if I possibly can but there certainly have been instances where it just hasn't been possible to find someone do you know what strikes me as um well interesting is that you know so so many of these people have been through such traumatic um events it must be hard for them then to go back and think about well what was my immunization history like you know how how do they prioritize that or how do you even get a history of that some people will remember really some some will but and they will tend to be people for example who are in camps that were Mm -hmm. perhaps ngo run and there is some attempt at record keeping and if people don't we can do blood testing to confirm whether or not they have actually been vaccinated or what their immunity status is so that's the alternative if we really need to know we can do and that's 
part of the refugee health assessment that we recommend all new arrivals have within that first 12 months is to establish what is your vaccination status and more importantly can we get you vaccinated quickly yeah. for those things that you're missing and who pays you are you state government so i am state government funded right yeah. And do you, I mean, the clinic that you work in, it's not just infectious disease clinicians and mental health clinicians. And I mean, So we, it's a really interesting clinic, the one uh, at uh, the Royal Melbourne. Yeah. So we have a GP uh, who, I don't know, I know I was told not, no names, but she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know who you are. <laughs> so she has a real interest in mental health. So she facilitates that refugee health assessment, which is the blood test, mental health assessment, to really establish a baseline. And that can be done over the course of 12 mm-hmm. months because the biggest challenge when you see someone is, what do I do first? Yeah. There's so much ground to cover. How much English do you understand? Are you literate? Are you numerate? Where do we proceed and what resources are we going to have to use to improve your level of health literacy so that you leave the interaction with a sense of, okay, what did we do today and what will we do the next time you come back for your next visit? So there's uh, this wonderful GP and then there are predominantly infectious diseases physicians within the department and we also have social workers as well particularly with the TB service which is a statewide one there's a wonderful social worker there too. Psychologists, psychiatrists? Uh, There are psychiatrists who assist in the service but you'll find and I think uh, nurse EpiPen you'll Uh, attest to this as well a lot of the larger hospitals are quite siloed in terms of the Mm -hmm. interaction that we have so we do have relationships with them but it's quite unusual to find a clinic where you would have a psychiatrist an infectious diseases physician Mm -hmm. you know an endocrinologist but we do we'll just call them so Mm -hmm. if we need someone so last this week i had a a a woman who had diabetes who Mm -hmm. needed to be placed on insulin and the endocrinology service were wonderful they brought an educator into the clinic room they sent a registrar and we had her started on insulin in the room so it can be done but it's very unusual to find a multi a truly multidisciplinary clinic i don't know how it is with you Michelle. You're, po- you're pointing, so you're pointing to Michelle. Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle. Thanks, Kutsai. Look, when um, the Royal Children's does have a number of multidisciplinary teams, but again, we rely on um, on various subspecialties to come in when required as well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting listening to someone else talk about their subspecialty because I get a sense of, gosh, it's also complicated. My work's relatively <laughs> straightforward. Um, it's a, refugee health is certainly a fascinating complicated area you know you were just talking about the endocrinology service being so um useful and so good we had the director of that service on our last show did you lovely man <laughs> yeah really really yes. great like good so we could talk for a long time about this and there are there are multiple issues and we'd love to get you back on the show if you would like to come back love sometime. to you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 rrr in melbourne australia michelle we last met at a cafe uh in carlisle street about 10 years ago that's right <laughs> uh, and, and i was there this morning believe it or not getting a the, coffee while i was waiting for the train really yes. well there you go um now, since we last met, uh, you have gone on to become a paediatrician. Uh, so clearly you love psychiatry that much that you ran away from the hospital. And, uh, and fascinatingly, you've become involved in uh, the area of gender and gender identity and so forth. Just before you get into your service, just 
tell us how this came about, how you got interested. Hmm. Well, I was fairly undecided when I was training whether I wanted to be a psychiatrist or a paediatrician. And halfway through doing paediatric training, I came across adolescent medicine, which is a lovely combination of the two subspecialties. And uh, I took a job full-time at the Children's as an adolescent paediatrician. And just as I did that... The doctor, an endocrinologist, who had been looking after the transgender children and adolescents who had come to the hospital, retired. And he's a lovely man. Um, He's become a very good friend and mentor. And he asked if I'd take over some of his patients. And I saw a couple of young adolescents at the time and I just fell in love with it. It really grabbed me and I've never wanted to let it go. Isn't that interesting? I think that happens a lot in medicine. You tend to fall into things. I think a lot of people start medical school thinking, oh, I'm going to become a neurosurgeon or a, you know, neurologist. But then you kind of do something and you just love it. And you love the people that are involved and the staff and the patients. And just, you just, it just kind of happens naturally. That's exactly right. Yeah. And when I did um, medicine as a medical student, I never came across anyone who was yeah. transgender. We didn't have any lectures or tutorials. Mm. And I think it's because it's such an emerging field and uh, growing area that really to get into this, you really had to fall into it. There was no other pathway, so to speak. If, we'll get to what you do in a second, but I'm just fascinated with this. If you were going to put uh, teaching about transgender issues into a medical course, where would you put it? Like what year and under what domain, what field of medicine would you put it under sociology, psychiatry, psychology? I mean, where would it go? Yeah, that's a good question. And our team at the Children's is very much a multidisciplinary mm. team with medical doctors, paediatricians, endocrinologists, etc., and mental health, mm-hmm. both psychiatrists and psychologists. So it's a real combination. Mm. We were asked recently to do a lecture to medical students at Melbourne University, and we decided to do it um, myself and a clinical bioethicist at, right. at the Children's Hospital. And we had a lecture theatre full of students. It went for two hours. Which is very unusual, let me tell you. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah, we weren't really sure how much interest it would generate, but for two hours there were questions galore and great engagement from the students and a number of them came up afterwards and and continued to ask questions. So that was really reassuring. Um, Back in 1977 at Cambridge University, we had a lecture on transgender issues, curiously enough, and we were taught back then that gender identity was entirely societally and behaviourally determined. It had nothing to do with genetics or chemistry or anything like that, and what we were taught has turned out to be completely wrong. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So that was one entire lecture on this topic which was 100% incorrect. Oh, dear. Yes, we've come a long way. That does happen a lot in medical school. You, you, know, you learn stuff which, you know, five years later is as, completely wrong. As the Dean of Harvard said back in the 19th, 19th century, in 20 years' time, 50% of what we've taught you will turn out to be wrong, and no one knows which 50%. <laughs> now I just say it's the same thing. It's just in about five years, not 20. <laughs> so, Michelle, tell us what you do at the Children's. So, as, um, as the Director of the Gender Service, I oversee... Uh, a team of now 16 staff Um, and as I said we're very multidisciplinary and when someone gets referred to us and 
Just to give you an idea of the numbers, we have had more than 200 new referrals this year. So we have a large number of children and adolescents who range in age from three years of age up to 17 when they come first Mm -hmm. to see us. And the first person they see is our nurse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the nurse does an assessment to determine how quickly that young person needs to be seen, like in terms of their risk from a mental Mm. health perspective and also where they're at in puberty and how Mm. quickly they might need medical intervention or or not. Um, Then the young person goes on to see a paediatrician and a psychiatrist around the same time. Mm -hmm. And for some young people that come to us, they never have any medical intervention. It's just an opportunity to talk about how they're feeling, to work out what they might want to do in the future in terms of who they are and where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but for others, the distress around their body is so great and uh, often life-threatening mm-hmm. that we have to initiate medical intervention to either stop the body changing in the mm-hmm. way that it is or give them some options in the future to try and make their physical body match their gender identity. What percentage? I mean, you mentioned that some people come and just want to chat just to sort things out. Is there a rough sort of proportion you could give us? Is it like 5%, a half? Yeah, we, um, we're currently looking at that, and it's okay. changing rapidly over yeah. time, yeah. actually. And one of the issues for us at the moment is that to access hormone treatment in adolescence, you actually have to go to the Family Court of Australia to get permission. We're the only country in the world that has this situation. And it was based... Can I back up for a second? Yeah. So if you want to use hormone treatment in a child with gender dysphoria, you have to go to the Family Court? Sorry? Yeah, well, we normally... Um, we don't do any medical treatment at all until someone's in puberty. So we're not talking about children, we're talking about adolescents for adolescents. medical intervention. And normally we would... In, in every, everywhere else in the world, they start to use hormone treatments at the age of about 15 or 16. In Australia, it's illegal to do that uh, unless you go to the family court. Does the family court ever say no? The family court has never said no. So we've had a, a relatively large number of adolescents go through the family court process and have been given access to the treatment. Um, but the process itself is so awful... <laughs> Surely somebody must be looking at this. Yeah, we are. So we um, we went to Canberra earlier this year yeah. in February and met with a number of politicians, including um, the Office of the Attorney General and the Shadow Attorney General. Um, because the, uh, the Family Court of Australia is a federal court, there's no um, way that we can change legislation in Victoria. It has to be done at a federal, yeah. federal level. So we have looked... At that and um, the legislative change, I'm told by the, the lawyers and, and others who work with us, that it's relatively straightforward, but um, it will take some political will to have it changed. The only other option for us to have this taken out of the court is for a family to go to the High Court to challenge that. But, of course, it's a, a risky, expensive, stressful yeah. process yeah, yeah, yeah. for a family that are yeah. going to get access yeah. to the treatment anyway because the family court's never said no. So we're in a bit of a bind. We're working very hard with the advocacy work's now been happening for a good four years. Yeah. And I think we're getting closer but it's, uh, it's a complicated process. Have you noticed a change in, I guess, referrals or the issues that people are coming to you with or the, um, 
the attitude of other doctors or people around you in the last five years? Because my mm. sense is that there has been a, a positive change towards understanding transgender issues and, and people and so forth. Yeah, we've definitely seen a change. Yeah. So when I first started uh, about five years ago in this area, I used to spend a lot of time going through the issues with parents to help them understand what their young person yeah. might be feeling and um, and so forth. Whereas now most families come having done a lot of reading um, and their own research, either through the internet or meeting other parents yeah, yeah. in a similar situation. And there is a greater level of acceptance um, and just a, a, a greater awareness, I suppose, of the issues involved. And many young people come to us having already socially transitioned so that they're mm-hmm. using their preferred name mm-hmm. or living in their preferred gender mm-hmm. role, mm-hmm. Uh, which is quite different to how it was before. Um, Michelle, uh, I've said that I was taught where this arose from and turned out to be completely wrong. Do we have any real understanding of what the root causes of gender dysphoria are? That's a good question, Dr Nick. We, what we know is that there are families with multiple children and other family members who have gender dysphoria and that if someone does have gender dysphoria, we can't change their gender identity. So most of us uh, believe that it's biological in origin and that it's um, part of our genetic makeup. Um, just as you can't make someone not transgender, um, uh, we know that all of the research that's been done on conversion therapy, where people have tried very hard to to change one's gender identity, have um, the research shows that it's actually very harmful and dangerous and increases self-harm and suicide rates. So from a social um, theory perspective... Uh, really there there's not much that we can do to change that so the other thing that's i think really interesting is that we've had a large number of um twins people that have been brought up in exactly the same household with the same social influences one is trans and the other isn't and um those sorts of examples also reinforce our our theory but there is uh, no indication from all the research that's done that it is entirely socially um, uh, dependent in terms of the etiology and it's much more likely to be biological. Is it ever possible that somebody or a young child might think that they are in the wrong body and it's short-lived? So, for example, my daughter was desperate to be a boy and she was about nine and she'd wear boys' clothes and she said, Mum, you know, can I change? And we said, well, you know, let's think about that. And I said we could refer you to the children's hospital, you could talk to somebody about it, but I said the waiting list is very long. And she, it was short-lived. She just she just grew out of it. But there was... Uh, is, it, is it normal? To, I can remember feeling like I wanted to be a bit of a tomboy. Is there a sort of a normal low spectrum that kids have that experience but it never it doesn't go yeah. too far so I, I think it's totally normal for young children to experiment with their identity and their gender uh, and we see that a lot that's very different from the children adolescents we see who have gender dysphoria which has a set of criteria that includes becoming extremely distressed when uh, their body changes in puberty. And one of the reasons we don't intervene at all in childhood is because going through puberty is really indicative of where things are going to go in the longer term. So we know that 
if a young person, for example, who's born biologically female starts to develop breasts in, in puberty and becomes highly distressed about that breast growth and identifies as trans, then the chance of them changing their gender identity um, over time is, is very, very small and probably less than 1%. So whilst it's fairly normal for young children to experiment or to think of themselves as tomboys or so, or, or um, more of a, a feminine boy, that's very different from the distress we see in the children who come to our service. If parents or kids want to know more, what should they do as a first step? So there's a lot of information now on the RCH website mm-hmm. for the gender service with links to um, community groups and parent support groups and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, a GP referral to our service will also link you in with someone who you can um, talk to. So what should you way. Google? RCH, Royal Children's Hospital, RCH gender, and it'll come up eventually with it will, uh, RCH Gender Service. Yeah, RCH Gender Service. And I've actually seen your website. It is really impressive. The amount of resources at the end was quite staggering, especially for a public health service. You know, <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Mal. I was quite <laughs> impressed by that. Um, so first port of call website, GP. Yes. And then uh, the GP can then refer the child and the family, obviously, yes. to your service. Absolutely. Look, again, there's a wealth of questions that are just like bristling at the front of my cortex wanting to ask you, but we'll keep those, I think, till we have you on the show next time, Michelle, if, you're, <laughs> sure. if you deign to come back. Um, fantastic stuff. Thank you so much. And that was uh, Dr. Michelle Telfer from the Royal Children's Hospital, Royal Children's Hospital, and you're the director of the Gender Service. That's right. Fantastic stuff. Triple R, not for everyone for anyone. It's time for Dr Nick. Well, it's been a big week if uh, people have been reading the papers and know about the assisted dying legislation that um, has been bubbling around for a long time now. It uh, was quite big news because South Australia voted it down in that state by one vote. When was that? Just a couple of weeks ago, very recently. Yeah. Um, which was a real pity because um, they felt like they had a good chance of getting something up. But to, to backtrack a little bit, the... Um, Victorian Labor government set up a committee of inquiry about this, um, I think it was about 18 months ago, um, which was an expert committee that spent a huge amount of time and a huge effort um, investigating assisted dying. Um, And there are lots of different words around this, euthanasia, euthanasia, doctor-assisted dying and so on. I'm going to use the phrase assisted dying in this context. Um, What this committee did was they went overseas, they looked at parts of the world, um, whether it was in the Netherlands, Switzerland, parts of America, Oregon, Canada, places like that, where, where this sort of service exists. And they did a huge amount of work looking at models that were there, success rates, looking particularly at concerns that we have, that people raise these concerns, oh, once you have this legislation, everybody will be wanting to bump granny off as soon as possible to get the cash or... The slippery slope. So bumping granny off early is one thing, and then the slippery slope of you start with someone who's got a terminal disease and suddenly you're bumping off everyone who's Mm -hmm. um, got some minor illness and they've cut their toe and you think, right, let's get rid of Mm -hmm. you or Mm -hmm. uh, moving on to children, which Mm -hmm. has happened in some jurisdictions. And the slippery slope argument is one that concerns a lot of people. Mm 
Um, so the committee produced a, a, a report which was handed to the government in the middle of this year, uh, which was a very detailed report with some recommendations about what new legislation might look like. And they addressed all these questions, and the report was really very comprehensive. It's a fascinating document. It's large, but well worth having a look at. Uh, because for me, those two questions are perhaps two of the most important, which is um, are we going to start having pressure, coercion, so that people are being pushed into ending their lives before they're ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, all the research overseas has failed to show any evidence of that happening. And to me, almost the contrary, we have a system in Australia which is uncontrolled. We have no checks and balances, uh, and it's not impossible that could be happening now. Um, we have no oversight of what's happening for older people who maybe are being pressured to stop taking their medication or commit suicide. We, know we had probably one suicide a week in this state of someone who's... Um, at an advanced stage of illness mm-hmm. um, and who's taking their own life. So we know that things are happening in an uncontrolled fashion at the moment. So the committee found no evidence that there was coercion and people being bumped off earlier than they wanted to be. Uh, and the other thing that uh, the committee looked at was the slippery slope argument. And again, they found absolutely no evidence that there was a progression from initial legislation assisting people who were at the end of their lives with a terminal illness and then suddenly providing assisted dying to people who maybe were not in such a bad situation. It just doesn't seem to happen. Yeah. Do you think, though, that, I mean, I often wonder what promotes legislation getting up or being tabled? Do, and often there can be, you know, great logical reasons. There can be fantastic statistics. There can be these great studies. But often it's personal experience or some emotive argument that actually starts the whole press process going. I mean, was that the case now? Or? Well, listen to what Daniel Andrews has said, who's, um, who's completely reversed his, his view about this um, based on his experience with his father. All right, okay. Um, so he, as, a, as a Catholic politician, he was previously anti any form mm. of euthanasia, went through a process with his own father, uh, which he saw as distressing, mm. saw that there may have been a better option, and now believes that some form of assisted dying legislation is entirely appropriate. And with the legislation before the Victorian Parliament, when you say assisted dying, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that a doctor can prescribe something for a patient or can so the, a patient give it the, to them? So, or? so the next step is that the, um, the committee have put a series of recommendations yep. to Parliament. It's now up to Parliament to put this into proposed legislation. So what Daniel Andrews announced is that there's now going to be a committee put together to formulate the, what the legislation would look like uh, and what um, we on the outside passionately hope is that it will look very much like what the committee who wrote the recommendations have suggested it should with oversights, with two doctors having to assess everyone and that your, the answer to your question, this is not about doctors going around injecting people left, right and centre. It's about providing people with a pill or a solution which they can choose to take but which is the correct thing which would cause them to die peacefully and at their own um, choice rather than a doctor having to do something. Who's on the committee? 
Well, that's yet to be decided. So they've said that there will be um, there will be independent doctors, there will be palliative care physicians, there will be ethicists. I'm not sure the exact composition, but there will be a committee set up that will put proposed legislation to Parliament probably over the next few months. It'll probably be drafted sometime over the next few months, and government will probably have a chance to vote on this sometime towards the middle of end or end of next year. And a very very important point for people who feel like I do rather strongly about this issue um, you do have a chance to actually lobby your members of parliament this is state based legislation so check out your state member and see what they they think about this issue I went to talk to a liberal member um, of the state government uh, just uh, the end of this week and uh, it was a very interesting process he was good enough to get, give his time to talk to me he clearly is anti-euthanasia uh, and was not going to be persuaded um, by my arguments around science, evidence and data against his gut feeling and his personal experience. And I think this is one of the, one of the battles that we have, is that it is a highly emotive issue and it's very difficult for people who feel strongly, whether it's from a gut feeling or religious point of view, to be persuaded by information and data. Uh, do people vote? And I'm asking this completely naively. This isn't a Dorothy Dixit. Do, do people vote along party lines with this? This will be a conscience vote. So that means uh, you are free to vote however you want by your party leader and you, there will be no repercussions for you as a politician. There was a lovely letter in the age about this saying, yeah, actually, you're an elected member of a democratic system. You're supposed to be representing the community's <laughs> view, not what your gut and personal view is. Why do we ever allow people a conscience? Oh, that's a good point. I thought of that before. <laughs> Because actually, that's right, isn't it? Really, what the politicians should be doing is listening to their electorate and then passing on that view rather than the, it's just my personal view. This is what I want. I like what you're saying, though, Dr. Nick, that you uh, should, if you have an interest in this, you know, email or knock on the door of or give a call to your local Victorian Member of Parliament. Um, we know that the um, in the community, the support for some form of assisted dying is overwhelmingly positive. It runs somewhere between 70 and 80 percent, um, and that's in the ABC Vote Compass. It's in pretty much every survey that's done of um, Australian people. Um, the Australian Medical Association um, is anti-assisted uh, dying, but uh, don't let anyone out there think that the AMA actually represents anything like the majority of doctors, because the majority of doctors uh, are, in fact, pro-assisted dying. This is something I don't understand. I mean, with, with a lot of political things, if, if something has such wide support, mm. and I imagine deep support as well, people are quite impassioned about it, why... What do you think stops politicians from enacting it in law? And I wish I knew the answer to that. And uh, I came away from the meeting mm. with um, said state member a little perplexed because I thought, uh, you're clearly an intelligent person. Mm. Um, you've told me the reasons why you believe this is not an appropriate form of legislation. We actually have a lot of data that say, well, those reasons actually turn out not to be valid. Mm. So we can assuage your concerns about that. So the valid concerns. We've got information. We have an answer to that to say, no, there is no evidence of slippery slope. We have no evidence that people are going to persuade their grannies to die mm. before they want mm. to. So there you go. You should now support it. No, not going to. It's, it's interesting how um, logic and emotion 
can uh, butt up against each other and, you know, one contradict the other. How, uh, and this, this is why I become a psychologist. One of the reasons I become a psychiatrist is it's quite interesting how, how, that, how one can cloud the other. And you think 80% of people want this and yet it doesn't go through and yet these are our elected officials. Anyway. Perhaps you could do us a five-minute tutorial on cognitive dissonance, which is... Cognitive dissonance. Oh, you, know, the guy that that, you know, the guy that coined the term cognitive dissonance also coined the term propinquity. And propinquity is the tendency of people who work together to have relationships. Propinquity sounds like a rare Roman coin. Doesn't it? Or as some sort of disease. <laughs> but do, do explain cognitive dissonance to the um, the listener and to the team because it's one of my favourite ones too. Well, I'll let Dr Nick explain it. He'll probably have a better explanation than me. Uh, it's, it's when the, the, my simplistic understanding of cognitive dissonance, when there's a clash between uh, information and one source of ideas and your internalised gut feeling, which maybe it's hard to put into words or explain explain in detail and so you've got a clash between two thinking cognitive ideas and so that's the dissonance and so you have to choose one path or another and for many people it's much easier to deny something external like facts and information because going against gut feeling is very hard so he did it much better than i could have yeah very good but and, and our classic one is andrew wakefield and lance armstrong sorry i'm sorry but they have that Cognitive yeah, they just they believe so much in the, in what they say that they don't go for the reality. So Andrew Wakefield had a couple of cases that were autistic. You know, they had oh, immunizations. Immunizations. Yeah. Hang on, just as you mentioned that name, you went to university with him, didn't you, Doctor Nick? Yeah, Andrew Wakefield was one of my bosses at the Royal Free Hospital. Do not get us started on Andrew Wakefield and MMR and all that sort of stuff at two minutes yeah. to the end of the okay. show. We actually have, we actually do have two minutes. You want to ask a question if you so, so my little question was. Um, uh, about life and ending life and religion and some people respect life and when I've heard people talk about ending life it's life's there to be lived in whatever shape or form and maybe it is the experience of seeing somebody having a cancer and not being able to breathe and not being being you know that's that's the worst case of life or your end of life. And, of course, you're absolutely right. Life is exactly that. But we as doctors and every single person know that at some point it comes to an end uh, and we cannot preserve life forever. For me, people are going to die. There are good deaths and there are less good deaths. My only interest is ensuring as many people as possible have a better death and that they have the choice, the autonomy to do things the way that works for them rather than have something imposed on them by a system that doesn't work. Do you know, it also brings into sharp relief what is the role of a healthcare worker? Is it to prolong life or is it to decrease suffering? And those two don't always overlap. And we make, well, I don't anymore, but doctors make lots of decisions every day um, about um, decreasing suffering and improving uh, health. Not always about prolonging life, and the, the, the very clear example is somebody who's um, you know in intensive care and has no prospects. You know what happens to them? You know with life supporting treatment. We could go on and on and on, Doctor. Just in case anybody's distressed by that conversation, um, the lifeline number is one three one 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 four. That's uh, lifeline one three one 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 four. Twenty four hour crisis line. Um, look, thank you so much to everybody who's been on the show this morning. Dr. Michelle Telfer, 
Thanks, uh, from Dr. Mal. the Gender Clinic. Thank you, Dr. Kudzai. And I'm sorry, I forgot how to pronounce yours. Kanutu. Kanutu, sorry, I didn't write it down. <laughs> from everywhere, from the Alfred, from Royal Melbourne Hospital, from anywhere else? The Universe. <laughs> the Universe. <laughs> <laughs> Nurse Plan from the Spleen. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Nick from uh, a wonderful uh, general practice. You pronounce uh, that so well. In my house. <laughs> You've been listening to Radiotherapy. Coming up in 10 seconds are the wonderful scientists from Einstein. A go go. They're going to be hitting you with some fantastic stories. They are jumping at the bit over there. We're going to catch up with you next Sunday morning for some more Radiotherapy. But we're going to leave you with this right now. Triple R.